Several weeks ago, Kenan and I began our study in the book of 1 John. We now come to the concluding verses of chapter 2 of 1 John. And I pull my sermon title from one of the verses that I'm going to teach today, Who's Trying to Deceive You? We live in a culture and a society today with TikTok theology and uh, uh, Google methodology, and we are deceived. Because sometimes we don't find the answers there. And we must become inquisitive. We must be willing to ask questions that sometimes present difficult answers. So we go back to the first century. Those who were trying to deceive the believers at Ephesus in the first century were the Gnostics. This belief that there was a higher plane of knowledge beyond Scripture that could help people, that could uh, take them to places they had never been before intellectually. So, first century, the Gnostics. But what about us today? If you were here last week, we talked about the Antichrist. So I believe today in the 21st century, it's those who are controlled by a spirit of Antichrist that produces a false religion, universalism, Luciferian dogma, political correctness, Progressive deception, just to name a few. And then I quote, Satan keeps pushing the goalpost deeper and deeper into the center of the church. And every time he sees no resistance, he is emboldened and he takes it to the next level. There are mainline denominations in our own city right now that are trying to decide what to do because of great sin that has infiltrated the church and the goalposts have been moved deeper and deeper. So what do we do? What do I do for Zeke and Danny? What do you do for your children or your grandchildren? We cannot allow the malignancy of deception to go unchecked. So I'm going to encourage those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus to check out everything by Scripture. Not by what a politician says. Not by what the Supreme Court may rule on. But what does the Bible say? Check everything out by Scripture. And we do that today. So if you have your Bibles, your smartphone, your iPad, your Kindle, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to take care of just these last few verses of that same chapter. John writes, let what you heard from the beginning abide. We don't use that word abide a lot in our vernacular today in the 21st century. But it means to remain, to stay, to reside. So let what you heard from the beginning remain in you. And if what you heard from the beginning remains in you, then you too will remain in the Son and in the Father. We see that Greek translated to English 23 different times in the book of 1 John alone. And when we read the words from the beginning for these believers describes the time when they were under the teaching of the apostles. And church, I want to tell you, I, I, I went back and looked and listened. My predecessors have preached the Bible to you for many years. Brother Edwin, Brother Aaron, Brother Fred, and countless others who have stood on the Scriptures, just like the apostles did in the first century. They have tried to do it in the 20th and 21st century. What did they do? Well, they were taught sound doctrine. In the first century, they were told that Jesus Christ is the only way. 
And they taught that, and they believed that, and they lived it out. Well, here we are, 20 centuries later, you're being taught sound doctrine. What does the Scripture say? What does the Bible say? And if you're taught sound doctrine, you learn that you're understanding that you're growing in Christ. That you're no longer a baby on the milk. You're now a full-grown, mature follower of Jesus on the meat of the Bible. It helps you to grow in Christ just as a baby after he or she is born, takes milk, and then over time, they began to eat solid food. I pray that we have done the same. They did it in the first century. We can do it in the 21st century. Thirdly, they remained faithful. And I know the winds of change are blowing. It's blowing in mainline denominations. It's blowing in friends of ours and family members of ours who go to those places. But I pray that First Baptist Church, that's for 202 years, have remained faithful to the book, remained faithful to the Bible. And then lastly, they would not be deceived by false teaching. Regardless of how it's repackaged by the enemy to try to deceive us, let us not be deceived by it. And listen, I'm telling you, through Sunday school and small groups and devotion, as well as the preaching and singing of God's Word, when false teaching comes, immediately you'll be able to recognize it. Just like you maybe work for the FBI or the Secret Service and you are working in counterfeiting. And you don't, you don't look at all of the counterfeit bills. You know exactly what the real thing is. You know the texture. You know what it looks like. And yet today, so many are falling prey to false teaching because they've not been discipled. They've not been grounded in the Word of God. So in light of the danger of the spirit of Antichrist that we preached about last week, we protect ourselves against that spirit by remaining in the original core Christian message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now there are many things in Scripture you and I might disagree about. The peripheral issues, the end times theology, eschatology, and other things. But there are some non-negotiables that we find in God's Word that are the pillars of our faith. Not just as Baptists, but as followers of Jesus Christ. And the most important of all is Jesus Christ dying on the cross, being buried in a barred grave, and then on the third day, He rose from the grave. That is common theology among those who believe. So simply put, we remain in what is from the beginning when we stay close to the Scriptures. Last week, Colonel Woodard shared with you about the Gideons and about Bibles and how we as a church can come alongside Gideons International and, and send Bibles not just in our own community but around the world. Why are we so excited and passionate about getting the Bible into people's hands? Because this can change people's lives. The Word of God never returns void. So if you get nothing else from the message today, maybe it's time to delve once again into the riches and the depth of Scripture so that no lie will seduce us, deceive us, and lead us astray. That's what our first century counterparts were dealing with. Those brothers and sisters had a situation where the Gnostics had come in as tares among the wheat, spreading a false doctrine trying to get them to fall. But if you look at the last part of verse 24, then you too will remain. It's not just about knowing the Bible, it's about living it out. Because you may have an 
incredible mind and you're, you're very intelligent and you can memorize things. And you may have the Bible memorized from Genesis to the maps and still die and go to hell. It's not just about what we know, it's about how we live. So to remain in this teaching is to remain in both the Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Father. And there's not any additional thing that we need. A few years ago, Billy Graham's grandson, Tullian Chichevin, wrote a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. I stand by that statement. Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. But so many churches today, so many false religions allow Jesus plus something that equals heresy and teachings of the Antichrist. Once again, all you need is Jesus. And with Jesus comes his Father as well. Look at verse 25. The Bible says, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. A lot of wonderful things were said about Miss Helen yesterday. She even made the front page of the Athens News Courier. Some of our folks were quoted and other people in our community, leadership was quoted in talking about how wonderful she was. But let me tell you, Helen did not get to heaven because she was good. She got to heaven because of Jesus. And we all need to be reminded of that. We don't have a works-based salvation because if it is works-based, how much you got to work? How much do you have to do? How much money do you have to give? How many hours do you have to volunteer? The Bible speaks of none of that, but it does talk about Jesus plus nothing equals everything, which is what provides us eternal life. So when his truth, which the early church brothers and sisters had heard from the beginning, lives in us, then Christ also lives in us. How does Jesus live in us today, 2,000 years later? By us repenting of our sin and believing in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All throughout this book, we are promised eternal life. And if Christ lives in you, then you have the promise. I will often make promises to Danny when I'm in revival. And I'll make sure that I'll tell the church that I'm preaching the revival at on that Wednesday night. Guys, I can't hang around at the end i got to get home to Alabama because when my little girl wakes up in the morning, daddy's going to be there. I've made a promise to her, and I'm going to move heaven and earth to make sure that I fulfill that promise. It's the same way with our heavenly Father. He's made promises to us in his word, and he would move heaven and earth to make sure he fulfills those promises to me and those promises to you. Look at verse 26. I write these things to you, about those who are trying to deceive you. Now again, the first century, a little bit different than the 21st century. There was no internet then. There was not this myriad of false religions as there is today. But yet, nevertheless, in the first century, there were individuals like the Gnostics and others that were trying to deceive. It was a full-time operation of deception. And we see that machine still running today. We see similar efforts in religion, in relationships, in politics, in business. We live in a day where disinformation abounds. And that's why I would encourage you to fact check. That when I take you to a text of Scripture and I take you there and I preach God's Word to you, 
you go behind me and you study the word yourself to make sure that I'm doing it right. Whoever stands in this pulpit, whether it be Kenan or Taylor or anyone else, to make sure that we are rightly dividing this word of truth. So with all that understood, let me ask you a question. Who's leading you astray? And it's not necessarily something that we shout it from the rooftops, but, but maybe some of us very subtly recently have been led astray. Maybe it's a who or it's a what. Maybe it could be something or maybe it's even a vice that we had overcome in the past that's reared its ugly head again. What's causing you right now to be distracted and turning away from Jesus? I'm not talking about turning away from the church. I'm talking about turning away from Jesus. And, and, and some of us recently have had scenarios and circumstances and situations that says, I'm just mad at God. I don't understand why all this is going on. That could be the thing that is happening to you. And I think we need to consider, especially in the culture and society in which we live, who or what is leading you astray. Look at verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. I believe verse 27 is a direct rebuke of the Gnostics. And over the years, theologians and scholars alike have been troubled by verse 27, which seems to imply that if you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need human teachers. What are we to make of this 20 centuries later? Well, the Bible consistently advocates teaching. Matthew 28, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, among other places. Therefore, we can confidently say that John's not ruling out a human teacher. Your Sunday school teacher just a few minutes ago stood in front of you as a man or woman of God, and they rightly divided the word of truth. I think what John was trying to get at in the first century is that the Antichrist, the false teachers, were insisting that the teaching of the apostles was to be supplemented by higher knowledge, an advanced knowledge that only they claimed to possess. How convenient. So what John does is write and says, no, if you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need extra biblical information. You need exactly what the apostles can give you. So John's response was that what the readers were taught under the Spirit's ministry through the apostles was not only adequate, it was the only reliable truth. So it's always my prayer when I'm preaching, whether it's as your pastor or I'm an evangelist or a revivalist somewhere, is that I have the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Meaning I've studied, I've read, I've prepared, I've, I've, I've brought my notes together. We call this in theological world illumination. It does not involve the revelation of a new truth, rather the enablement of the appropriate God's truth that's already been revealed. We already have the Word. Everything that we would ever need for salvation is already ours. We don't need anything more. So let the Holy Spirit be your guide. Not another spirit, an antichrist spirit, that would lead us astray. Now I want you to look at the second part of verse 27. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I'm so thankful today that we have word and spirit. We have the anointing of the Holy Spirit 
and we have the Word of God. We have the canon of Scripture, both the Old and the New Testaments. We have in its completion to us, and you and I have a number of Bibles probably in our home or in our study. I can't even tell you how many that I have that's been either given to me as a gift over the years or when Lifeway was open, I would get a case of the can't help it, so I'd have to buy me a Bible every time I went. They love seeing me come in. Oh, Pastor Joel, we've got a new version over here, and it's a new study Bible. Would you like this? But don't just buy it and put it on your shelf. Study it, absorb it, read it, and apply it to your life. So all you got to do is go back in church history. Word and spirit was the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation that recaptured the truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But it wasn't just for Martin Luther and others. It's for us today. It should be our battle cry in our generation. It's what we're trying to teach Zeke and Danny. Love the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Apply the Word of God to your life. It's what John was trying to say then. It's what we're trying to say now. Look at verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Yes, even in the first century, there was an anticipation that Jesus just might come back. And I'm sure our early church fathers in the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and all the way through, everybody's been waiting on Jesus to come back. But here we are in the 21st century. Unprecedented events have let us maybe get a little glimpse. Could we be the terminal generation? Could those of us seated in this room right now see the return of Christ in the clouds? I think it's possible. I think the prophetic events are lining up in such a way that my predecessors from 50 years ago or 75 years ago, there are things that they couldn't say about Bible prophecy coming to pass that I can say now it has. But yet the first century, our brother John says, hey, we can have confidence at his appearing we don't have to be shameful. So I believe salvation and sanctification are on John's radar screen here. He encourages us to stay with Christ. And listen, I know life is hard sometimes. It is difficult, and sometimes you have to almost go through it alone. You're never alone with Jesus, but you get what I'm saying. You can't tell it to another human being. Sometimes we can't even, can't even explain it rightly to our spouse. Because we walk through these valley of the shadows together. And it's through those moments that the Holy Spirit teaches us. But praise God, we can have confidence at the return of Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm not talking about being prideful or boastful and says, I'm going to get to go and you're staying behind. No, it's just a confidence that knowing that I believe in Christ. And therefore, when Christ returns, I don't have to be ashamed. But when I was studying last week, I wanted to take this direction and speak to the body. Is it possible to be saved and then yet ashamed when we one day will stand before Jesus? Do you know that Scripture bears this out? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul seems to address the possibility. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test the quality of each one's work. There are many who believe wrongly, I might add, 
that if I can just accumulate and I can build up with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and straw, I can impress God. But we can't. It's going to be revealed by fire. And if it's not Jesus, it's going to be burnt up anyway. So if anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved. But only as through fire. So once again, from an eschatological perspective, the study of end times, Christ is coming again. He's going to appear on the earth again officially and in full public display as King of kings and Lord of all lords. So when he appears, when Christ does come back, will we have boldness or will we be ashamed? When I walk in the house in the afternoons, Danny is usually doing her homework. But boy, when I walk in the door, she runs toward me and gives me a big old hug. But sometimes Danny and Joe have had a conversation and she does not like me to see her cry. And so she'll draw back or she'll attempt to hide from me for a few minutes until she gets those tears wiped out of the way. And then she'll come toward me. I want to tell you that we today, just as we are, need to come run into him. To bring all of your burdens, to bring all of your tears, your frustrations, and all of your questions. Remember when Job went through what he went through in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2? He lost everything. And then he lost his health. And then his so-called friends come around saying, you know why this is happening to you? You've been a bad boy. That was not the reason why at all. God was allowing Job to go through a time of testing. And the Bible says, and Job went through all of this, and in none of this, Job did not sin foolishly. I've thought about us. I've thought about my family. I've thought about many of your families and what you've walked through and what you've gone through. And what if in the midst of our difficulties that Jesus decided to come back? I'm, I'm praying, Lord, let my focus always be on you. Not my circumstance, but Lord, let my focus be on you because I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to try to hide when my Savior returns. And probably every one of us who are sons and daughters of the Most High, we don't want to be ashamed as well. Look at verse 29. Let me try to close. If you know that he is righteous, which we do, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, again, this is not talking about a works-based salvation. But one of the things I'm reminded of, and I thought back all those years I worked at Steelcase, Jeff and some of us others that work there. Don't be surprised at the words or actions of the lost. A lost co-worker, a lost family member, a lost friend, a lost neighbor. Lost people are going to act like lost people. But the new birth in Jesus precedes new behavior. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. None of us are. But what I am saying is that once Jesus Christ comes in, over time, he'll change the way you talk. He'll change the way you walk. And I think that's always a good indicator to look back and see, has my life changed? And beloved, if it hadn't changed, you may not be saved. 
If you're still doing the same things you always did without any moment of ever stopping, maybe that's a good indicator. Maybe that's a bright neon sign flashing in front of you right now. I need to be saved. I need to repent of my sin. You see, being born of God has definite and abiding results. Children of God will grow to look like God, their father. Many of you have children that are now grown. And I've been your pastor a little over seven years now, and I see you in your kids. Our practice is proof of our parentage. We begin to look and act like our father, our mother. Spiritually, those of us who are in Christ, we begin to act like our Father. Merciful, grace-giving, compassionate, and loving. Now, of course, there's exceptions to the rule. Sometimes the acre doesn't fall too far from the tree, and sometimes it falls a, a long distance. But much of our practice is the proof of our relationship our relationship with our earthly parents, but most of all, our relationship with God the Father. And maybe today you could look over the course of your life. No one else has to do this for you. You know. You know. Something hadn't changed. Now, I can play the church game. I know the lingo now. I know what offerings to give to. I know how to have the appearance but is it real? And I think John in the first century was trying to shake his followers to the core saying, does what you say that you have, is it really real? And friend, if it isn't, you're in the right place. Right here. Right now. Settle this most important issue.